Welcome to the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services In Conversations with podcast series on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to UBS On Air. My name is Judy Spaltoff, and I have the pleasure of leading the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team here at UBS. The mission of our group is to serve as a thought partner to exceptional families. We understand that our clients' needs extend beyond the purely financial, so we take a strategic, sustainable approach to managing their wealth for continuity. We work with our clients to get to the heart of what's most important to them and help align their passions with their charitable giving opportunities that achieve their philanthropic goals. An important step in identifying where our passions lie and how to best meet our goals is to learn from others and hear success stories from other passionate philanthropists. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of hosting a conversation with Gail Simmons. Gail is a trained culinary expert, food writer, and television personality. Since the show's inception in 2006, wow, 18 years, uh, Gail has lent her expertise as a permanent judge on Bravo's Emmy and James Beard award-winning series Top Chef. So, um, and she's also the host of its newest spinoff, Top Chef Amateurs, set to premiere in 2021, this year, coming soon, um, as well as the host of Iron Chef Canada. She was also previously uh, a head critic on Top Chef Masters and host of Top Chef Just Dessert. And then from 2004 to 2019, Gail served as Special Projects Director of Food and Wine. So she's written um, a couple of books, cookbooks. Um, first one in, in February 2012, she published her first book, Talking With My Mouthful, which my mom would never approve of anyway, um, her first cookbook. Uh, bringing it home favorite recipes from a life of adventurous eating uh, was released in October of 2017. Gail is a weekly contributor to Dr. Oz is a Dish on Oz and frequently appears in daytime television shows such as Today, Rachel Ray, The Talk, and so on. Gail is an entrepreneur in residence at Babson College, co-founder of Bumble Pie Productions, and sits on the board of several organizations of which we're going to talk about, uh, including City Harvest and Hot Bread Kitchen. She lives in New York City with her husband, Jeremy, and their two children, Dahlia and Cole, ages seven and three. This is impressive. Um, Gail, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. And of course, I really am excited to dive into your philanthropy, but I I think a lot of our listeners uh, would want to know, how did you get your start in food media and what sparked your interest? Um, You know, I'll try to condense the story because it was not a given for me. (laughs) Um, And it begins a really long time ago. Uh, with what became a circuitous path to where I am now. And obviously, I think that's the same for everyone. Uh, What you set out to do and what you have a goal to do takes many twists and turns until you find your way and figure it all out, of course. Um, And it's never exactly as you seem, especially as it seems, you know, at the onset, especially these days. Um, You know, the... The truth is, I used to be reluctant to admit that my mom was actually a food writer in Canada. I grew up in Toronto, Canada, (laughs) and um, my mom ran a cooking school out of our home when I was a child, teaching all the other moms and dads in the neighborhood how to cook at a time when most people were just turning to convenience foods, microwaves, and, um, you know, and fast food. My mom was a real trailblazer, and she was an amazing, spontaneous um, cook in her own right. And she also wrote a column for Canada's biggest newspaper, the Globe and Mail. And it was a real inspiration for me. Obviously, we had great food in our house. My mom was always in the kitchen, and I was always right beside her, as cliche as it sounds, you know, at the stove, watching her and taking it all in. Um, but it wasn't until years later, like when I graduated from college, you know, I went to college, I studied something completely unrelated to the culinary arts. I got a, you know, a bachelor of arts in anthropology 
and Spanish language. I loved to travel and I did a lot of traveling, uh, both as a child with my family because my parents were avid travelers and that's where they spent their money um, always. You know, when I was little, I, I would be very envious of my friends who maybe had larger houses or fancier cars, but I was the one on Christmas break where my parents would take us to Costa Rica or the Middle East or Africa. My father is from South Africa and we spent um, a lot of time in my childhood in sub-Saharan Africa, um, in in South Africa and neighboring uh, areas. So travel is a big part of my life. Food through travel is a big part of my life, but it wasn't until I graduated college when I really started cooking for myself and realized that this could be a career. But remember that this was sort of the dawn of the internet. I'm talking over 20 years ago now. And there weren't blogs. There wasn't YouTube. There was no real social media. You know, Facebook was in its infancy. The Food Network had, was just starting and was really like four or five male chefs cooking. Um, so it was just like a, a totally different food landscape. But writing was something I loved to do. And writing about food was was very much around in select publications. There was, of course, the magazines we all know, the big glossy food publications. And there was the women's section at the back, you know, of like magazines or the back of women's fashion magazines. There was always like one food page, for example. And then there was the, the cooking and dining sections of newspapers. And that was really what food media meant only 20 years ago. I mean, think of how far we've come in the world. Um, um, And so when I graduated and realized I wanted to cook in food and wanted to be in the food industry, I went to my mom and told her, and she was less excited than you would think, considering that was what she did, mostly because she just wanted to make sure that I could make a living. Um, And her friends all thought it was beautiful that I wanted to be just like my mom. And of course that made me... Mm -hmm. horrified because who at the age of 22 (laughs) wants to be told that they're just like their mother, right? That's like a fate worse than death. And it (laughs) felt like destiny was beyond my control, but I knew that that was what I wanted. And so I got a job in Canada for a little over a year working for a magazine in Toronto and then a newspaper. And at both, I was just drawn to the food editors. And when I followed them around and begged them to let me write for them, eventually I sort of hit a point where I needed more experience and I needed to figure out a way to have a leg up because I was, you know, a a young journalist just starting out and what was my edge in the food scene over people who had been doing it for years in such a small crowded space. And I was given really great advice, which was you don't know anything about food, go learn about food so that you can write about it with authority. You know, the editing and writing anyone can do, but to write about food with fluency, you need to learn how to cook because just because you like to eat doesn't mean you know how to cook. And I took that advice very seriously. I quit my job at the newspaper I was working at, packed my bag, moved to New York City and enrolled in professional culinary school. And um, and the rest, I guess, is history. And I've kind of done every job in the food industry uh, since that time, you know, 20, 21 years wow. ago, 22 years, 22 years ago. Well, I love the sort of start of your, your your family taking you kind of on the road and traveling all over the world because it's, it's hard to enjoy travel and not enjoy food exploration, right? They kind of go hand in hand with it, like fully immersing yourself into cultures. 
Um, that's kind of, our, I, I mean, I have a, I have a love of food. <laughs> I haven't made it my career, quote unquote, yet. But, but that's I, I, okay. I, I, you don't know when you don't need yeah. to make it your career to appreciate it, to understand it, to explore it and to be a, a cook and a, and a food lover. Because, you know, when I, when I referenced before that I studied anthropology in college, everyone thought that like, oh, you want to be in food. Good thing you've got that anthropology degree. What does that have to do with it? But you just summed up <laughs> for me exactly the connection that, Food is how the lens through which I see the world and see culture and see how we are connected and how we are diverse. And, uh, and that is what the study of cultural anthropology is. I mean, it is the study of mm-hmm. cultures around the world and how better a way to understand the world than through understanding food, food and, and, and cooking and how different cultures approach gathering at the table. And so it all kind of just fits for me. And I do feel like over the years, I've come to be, you know, a a food anthropologist. That's what I do in so many ways. And that's why I love it so much, because it lets me explore the world. Yeah, no, for sure. And and the the question I was thinking to ask you, which I think you kind of just answered, which is, what do you love most about what you do? Is it that food exploration or something else? Oh, most definitely. I mean, I think that I love that I have found a job that, allows me to use my my mind, engage in conversations, global conversations in a million ways, but that also allows me to use my hands. You know, there's a creative physicality to food, to cooking um, that I love. And no two days are the same. You know, one day I'm traveling to a far-flung location um, and the next day I'm developing recipes in my kitchen and the next day I'm writing about my discoveries um, and, or the next day I'm in a television studio, you know, I get to do all these things and it's physical and it's a mental challenge. And I think that is to me, what makes working in the food industry so unique. It's also, I think the community that I have found chefs and food people, the food community are an exceptional group of people. And, um, this industry has fallen on the hardest times in its history this past year but I've never seen more innovation and resilience. And uh, I'm very proud to be part of a part of this community. Yeah. It's been, that, that, that's been so hard, right. Especially both of us mm-hmm. being New York city residents, you know, just to see some of our beloved restaurants and, and chefs and, you know, closing doors and stuff like that. So I, I, I feel like there's a turnaround and, you know, on the way, but it's, I can't yes. imagine how hard it's been for the community. So shifting gears, um, thinking about your, your, your philanthropic and charitable endeavors. Um, I, in your, when, in your introduction, I called out City Harvest and Hot Bread Kitchen. Um, City Harvest playing, you know, during COVID such a vital role um, as they normally would play, you know, every day, but during COVID, I think an even bigger one. So can you tell us a little bit more about, I mean, I, to me, it's obvious how you came to them, right? It's their food adjacent, but tell me, yes, yes. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about both orgs, if there's any other organizations you want to call it, and how you come to find them and how you, you know, how do you, how, much, how do you determine how much time you give these organizations? Um, you know, uh, the one thing I, I'll say uh, that I referenced a little bit uh, about the food community, and it feels obvious when you say it out loud, but I don't think civilians outside the food community really understand the connection um, that food people are the most generous people I know. And I don't know a single person who works in the food industry who doesn't under, who, who doesn't understand 
the depth of what feeding people, nourishing people means. I mean, people go into the food industry not to get rich, because if you go into the food industry to get rich, you are there for the <laughs> yeah. season, and you will be gravely disappointed. I think, I think in general, that is uh, um, a real disillusionment, a piece of the puzzle that has been really on display in this past year, that everyone assumes that restaurateurs and chefs are because maybe they're famous, some are famous or, you know, restaurant groups um, mm-hmm. are successful, that that means that they are rich <laughs> and that they have money to burn. Uh, and I'm not going to delve so deeply into the finances of the restaurant business right now, but I will say that the margins of the restaurant business are the smallest margins you've ever seen. And even the biggest name chefs, um, you know, are struggling right now um, and, and have always struggled to with with incredible overhead costs and and small margins, the cost of food is exorbitant, um, and making it and providing for the people who make it is such a huge task. So, with that, I think comes tremendous responsibility. And our industry has always been at the forefront. You know, you go into this industry to feed people, and yes, it's a business transaction most days of the week. Um, running a restaurant is a for profit business. But I, I, but being in the food industry is almost like being in a not-for-profit business in a lot of ways because right. just as many ways that you feed people by presenting them with a check at the end of the night or making a TV show that's obviously for profit about food, uh, we do as many things to feed this country and the disparity of food needs in this country um, right. as well. And what we have come to all, what we've always known is that there is a huge disparity. And that um, getting food to everyone who needs it in America, I mean, all over the world, but certainly, let's just, you know, <laughs> keep, it, keep it to this country um, for the sake of the conversation. Um, it's not about there not being enough food, right? Uh, that's not the problem in America. There is plenty of food to go around. The issue is the distribution and the politics of food and getting it to the people who need it the most uh, because of the cost of food, because of government subsidization and um, and policy and, and distributions and, and, and the, um, the, the supply chain. So City Harvest is one of the most special organizations in New York City. It's the oldest food rescue organization in the country, I believe. Um, and it basically rescues food from all different avenues, um, all across the country and redistributes it to the places that need it the most. So that means that it can go to restaurants and get all the food that they don't need at the end of the night. That's still, you know, the, the fresh food that hasn't been touched, obviously, and handled. We obviously are doing this incredibly safely. If you think of catering operations, giant institutions that are feeding people, cafeterias, um, and then all kinds of food companies, farmers, there is so much food that goes to waste or that won't be used that's almost at its peak and can't be sold um and and city harvest is dedicated to finding that food and making the most of it and redistributing it and they do that in a in a myriad of ways um and i've been sitting on their food council for probably 15 years uh with a lot of really other extraordinary people in the food industry and we do a number of things advocating for them, uh, advocating for their mobile markets, for distribution channels, raising money and awareness for them. I'm the chair. I'm one of the chair people of um, a huge initiative called Share Lunch, Fight Hunger. It used to be called Skip Lunch, Fight Hunger. 
um, that raises funds by in, in the month of May, um, donating what you would spend on one lunch to the organization. Um, and that ultimately, when everyone does it, um, raises an enormous amount of food that really can go a long way when City Harvest spends it efficiently. So, um, you know, hunger and, you know, feast and famine are two sides of the same coin. And working in the food industry, I'm so aware of the luxury I have to eat as well as I do every day to feed my family as well as I do. And so being on the forefront of of the hunger crisis, especially in this last year, which has tripled, quadrupled in need uh, because of the pandemic and because of the vast um, unemployment rates and illness and, um, you know, the disparities that we have now uncovered um, through this pandemic, I, I just feel like there's nothing right now more vital than making sure that everyone has basic needs like access to fresh food and nourishment. That was kind of long-winded, but I think you get the idea. City Harvest is integral to the, to really the operating of New York City in so many ways, and it's it's going on. I'm sure everyone, if you live in New York, you've seen their trucks on the street, mm-hmm. um, doing you know doing God's work. Uh, that said, organizations like City Harvest and other uh, food rescue and food bank organizations, uh, Food Bank for New York City. Um, City Meals on Wheels, all of these incredible organizations, Feeding America, Share Our Strength, and, and No Kid Hungry. I've worked with all of them in various forms, and um, they are sadly a band-aid, not a solution to the problem, uh, because the solutions need to come from much bigger organizations, and you know, really at the government level. Um, but at least as civilians, this is what we can do to help those in need and our and our fellow citizens along the way right yeah we talk about so that thing so that's pretty hard right right it's positive <laughs> but they both need uh, to happen right like treating the symptoms yeah, versus exactly. the root causes yeah so tell me about that is, that is exactly right so um so hunger obviously is is looms large in my life and in my philanthropic endeavors in many ways um and the other i mean there's so many obviously causes i feel strongly about but the other that um, I give a lot of my time and support to is an organization called Hot Bread Kitchen, um, which supports women in the food industry and specifically women, um, immigrant women, women of color, and women living and working in underserved neighborhoods um, in and around New York City and the tri-state. And it does so in many ways, but first and foremost, Hot Bread Kitchen trains women to work in the food industry. And in doing that, it puts them through uh, an incredible training program to put them on track and provide them with the skills and then the career services and guidance and connections they need and job placement services to find them jobs that are sustainable to their needs and women's needs, especially women who are um, parent mothers uh, and parents um, are, are unique in the restaurant industry for many reasons. And so it, it, it gives them the support they need to, to give them job training in the food sector and not only get them a job, find them a job, but help them sustain that job into the future and um, 
it's an organization that's been around for a little over a decade. I think 12, it's going on its 12th year. I've been on the board for 10 of those years. And, uh, you know, being on the board of directors, I'm not just sort of a spokesperson. I'm, I'm involved on many levels of the operating of the organization. Um, and it's a small but mighty group of people who make a really big difference in the lives of a lot of women and in turn their families. It's a trickle, it's a trickle up effect. You know, when you support a woman in a community, uh, you are supporting their family, you are supporting then their community and allowing them to um, get opportunity to take the next step into providing for everyone around them. And so it really brings uh, a new sense to the term breadwinner. And that's what we are creating. We are creating breadwinners. Uh, women breadwinners in New York City, and um, I'm just really proud of the work that they've done. They they also, you know, they they started off as a bakery, training these women baking bread, and that you can still find their breads at Whole Foods and many other places for purchase. They're delicious and beautiful breads that they um, have created, inspired by the places that many of these women are from around the world. Uh, but they give structure and 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 they give an infrastructure to to women in the food industry, which is notoriously a difficult place to navigate for women. Mm, for sure. So how do you find balance between all of your professional obligations and in your philanthropy and then your young family? <laughs> the big uh, balance. Uh, there's no balance. I don't, I yeah, I've never, there's no balance. And I don't say that like to be, uh, you know, snarky. Um, Truthfully, it's a question that I don't think any of us can answer, uh, man, woman, or child, especially these days, um, or however you identify. Uh, balance is going to be a challenge. It's always a challenge in my life, but I give uh, as much time as I can to, you know, prioritizing my family and then, you know, everything else. So it all kind of goes hand in hand, I think. Right. Uh, there's no lines necessarily drawn, especially now that I'm working from home 90% of the time. Um, right. But, I, you know, my, my mantra about giving and whether that's giving my time or my funds is always to give until, until you feel it. Like, you know what I mean? Give and Give as much as you can until you feel that it it is it is starting to encroach on the money you need for yourself. Like, do you know what I mean? There's, there's right. yeah, yeah. Not, I believe, and that was um, a, a good friend of mine who is a mentor of mine um, and an incredible and extraordinary philanthropist in her own right, um, a woman by the name of Lori Friedman, who she, she runs... Um, the, the merchandising at the Whitney Museum of Art. She's an amazing supporter of the arts and so many different causes, but that was advice that she once gave me. And it's always really stuck with me that I just, I kind of try to give until it hurts. I don't want, not that I feel you need to inflict pain on yourself, but the idea that, you know, if I give $10, $20, $100, $1,000, $100,000, at what point does it, like, you know, there's more, will, what, when will it start meaning more to, to me than it will to the person I'm giving it to? And as long as it means more to that person and that person will need it more than I need it to provide for my family, I want to give it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
I'm a bit of a socialist in that respect. Um, I'm from Canada after all, and I support <laughs> social welfare. I really do. And, you know, um, I, I think yeah. that there's, there's, if I can give a hundred dollars today and I won't feel it, then I want to uh-huh. give it. And that's sort of been my mantra. As long as it won't affect the needs of my family, um, I, I, I just hope to give what I can in time or not. And there are moments when it definitely encroaches, you know, in terms of balance, mm-hmm. um, assessing the amount of time I put into things is, is part of that, is part of that juggle, right? The prioritizing when I need to focus just on my family and say no to giving my time, even if it's to causes that I know are important. Um, mm-hmm. I need to prioritize my family, obviously. Um, and everyone's balance of what that is, is going to be different. And by no means right. do I have it nailed down. Um, but but I do feel as much as possible that it also is at the same time an example to set for my family. Um, right. Giving so that's, that's what I, so that, that's yeah. It too. So how do you instill it in your children? Do they know, do you talk about your philanthropy with your kids, whether it be your time or your, your talents or your treasures? What do you, how do you instill all this in your kids? You know, I think it's just by example. And I, the more every day that goes by um, as a parent, it's a, a discovery and a navigation and my children are still very young so I'm still listening and learning from everyone around me as a parent um, and I'm lucky that I have so many strong and amazing mentors in my own life to to ask these questions to but I, one thing is sure children learn by seeing more than saying you know they do what you do not necessarily what you say and so as much as talk, I, I do believe in talking about it, of course, I do talk about it, but I find that the lessons they learn and internalize are because they're seeing it in action. And that's how really to solidify these lessons in their lives. So um, we, we really do try to just talk about it, but also show our children as much as possible um, what we're doing. So it's not just telling them that I work for a organization or a nonprofit that I believe in, but it's showing them the fruits of that labor and the people that it affects and allowing them to be part of the process. Um, even if it's, you know, with my little guy, who's not even three, um, you know, help doing coloring. Sometimes we we color in our city harvest coloring pages Mm -hmm. and we show him the truck that when it passes on the street, that says city harvest. And we tell him where that truck's going and uh, we talk about the people who, um, you know, who, whose lives it's helping. Um, we try to do days of service as often as we can that are appropriate to the age of our children. Um, and when I come home from doing something, being even if it's a two-hour Zoom call for my a board meeting, uh, you know, telling my children what my day entailed and, um, you know, cause they don't, they know you go to work. They don't really know what you do in those hours, even if it's just behind your right. bedroom door. So just trying to explain it to them. And, and I think as they grow, they'll learn more and more, but I definitely see that some of it is just learning empathy. Right. And that's a valuable lesson. And I, I hope that as they get older, that will translate to them wanting to do the same. Right. Empathy and compassion, right. To not just understand, mm-hmm. but do something. That's right. Building, you know, contribute. 
Right. I'm glad that you talk about the work, right? Because it's one thing, it's kind of like walk the talk, talk the talk, but I think that there's an yes. opportunity for, for you to explain. Like, we are so fortunate, right? We have, we are never going to worry about where our next meal is coming, but, you know, there are people that do. Um, and truthfully, what, yes, I, I was just going to say, like, you know, not even just also assuming and taking that for granted that we know where our next meal is from. Yes, right now we do know that, but this year has shown us that there are many people who always thought that they wouldn't worry about those things either. And now they do. Mm -hmm. And you can never just assume that you're always going to be the lucky one. And uh, just try to, to, you know, to be grateful for and express that to my children, I think is is part of it too. I mean, my first experience um, with being a philanthropist, I'll say in my own way, is so it goes back to my first job so my first job I was I worked at a bagel shop that I could walk to as a kid and it was like 5 30 in the morning I'd be you know I'd be opening at 6 a.m and I would you know for the first six months I would say I was always opening um because I was the one that was just grateful to have a job and you know happy to open and then I got a little bit more experience and they started having me close and and the the, the sick reality of closing was that I had to toss all the bagels and I remember calling my mom, I had just turned 16 and calling my mom in tears. And I'm just sitting there kind of like basically in this chair in the back of the thing. I'm like, I can't do it. I can't throw this all out. There's probably like six dozen bagels or something like that. My yeah. Mom like rushed up and she picked me up and we, we bagged them up and we started trying to hand them out to our neighbors. And it was like this two hour project of handing out these bagels. And that it, and then every time I closed, it was this whole thing. And then my mom started making bagel chips. <laughs> you know, we started doing all this work, but it was that, yes. that that horrible feeling I had of waste. And my so that leads me to my first experience as a philanthropist. I graduate from college. I, I go to New York and I see the trucks go by. I'm like, well, what's that? And I'm immediately drawn because I'm drawn back to that experience. I had personal experience I had with food waste. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So literally the first check I ever wrote, if you will, I think there's a credit card payment still, but mm-hmm. was yeah, yeah. $100 to City Harvest. And I had would make it right out of college, right? And so it's been so near and dear to my heart ever since then. And I give them so much credit. It's not easy, right? There's so many restrictions and so many things to repurpose food in this way, but I, 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 so I applaud you and I applaud the work, um, of, of not only city harvest, but the, the profession that you're in. And like you said, the, you know, I, I hear that you just admire the people in your industry as being the most philanthropic and charitable and just wanting to feed people, which is really, really yeah. incredible. So I, I'm personally affected by it. I, I have my own personal experiences, but I just, um, I can't thank you enough for lending not only, you know, your name, but your, and in your treasure, but you know, your, your time to these great organizations um, that I have been close to my heart for, for many years too. Um, so Gail, <laughs> this has been a lot. We've taken up a lot of your time today. I appreciate it. Um, I, I didn't know the original the or, origination story of how you got your career started. So I'm so delighted to have heard that story. Um, uh, so we, we, we have our moms to thank for a lot of things. And my mom was, had my back yes. and I needed to figure out what to do with, with this waste too. So, um, but I was such say, a huge fan. Mom, my mom was integral in, in food and that part of my life, but both my parents and, and, and my dad in a real way was absolutely the person who I model my giving after. I mean, my father and my mother, my mother volunteered at a food bank, cooking meals and a food pantry my entire life. And, and my father 
was an has worked in nonprofit and environmental causes and and also been giving as a philanthropist my whole life and that's you know part of I think uh, the example they set which affected me so deeply by watching them do it and I, I certainly have them to to thank for that for that um, understanding of of what giving and, and philanthropy really is mm-hmm. and you're paying it forward and I'm sure your kids and gosh, 20 years or whatever, we'll say the same thing about you. Right? Hope and so. Pyramid, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> here's hoping, right? Um, yeah, here's Yeah, so to do your best. Right, 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 for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's three and seven. You still have some time, right? Um, but, yeah, uh, Gail, thank you so much. I'm such a huge fan, um, an even bigger fan now. Um, I know our audience will have enjoyed hearing from you and learning about you um, and, and these two great organizations that you highlighted. So, um, just thank you on behalf of all of our listeners and, and on behalf of UBS. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.